Welcome to the 40th episode of The Liam McCollum Show. This podcast interview is with Gerard Casey, Professor Emeritus at University College Dublin. He is a philosopher and the author of Libertarian Anarchy Against the State, Freedom's Progress, Zap, Free Speech and Tolerance in the Light of the Zero Aggression Principle, and hashtag MeToo, Feminism, Patriarch, Toxic Masculinity, and Sundry Cultural Delights. He also teaches a course on logic at Liberty Classroom, which is top-notch. I actually took his courses and reached out to him to help advise me on one of my philosophy essays a while back, and we've talked a couple times since. Our conversations are typically as long as this podcast runs, so I figured I'd just hit record and have him talk about the founding principles of libertarianism through the lens of freedom of speech and the right to property. These are exactly the types of things that I'm interested in, and I've yet to do a podcast about the zero aggression principle and specifically property rights. So I'm very excited for this one, and I hope you enjoy it. Um, it is a very lengthy one. I think it, it's very close to my original interview with Jacob Hornberger, but remember to like, subscribe, and share. I'm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Here's Professor Casey. Professor Gerard Casey, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Liam. It's good to have good, good, good to be here. Yeah, so I wanted to bring you on and talk about one of your earlier books, Zap. Um, mm -hmm. This is something that I'm very fascinated with, and I haven't really covered libertarian philosophy or free <clears throat> speech and property rights. So I think that this is really great. And earlier, early on in your book, you ask, you say, should you be able to say anything you like to anyone at any time, anywhere? in public or private, in person or electronically. And then you tell the reader to pause and ask themselves, how would you answer this question? Um, and I think that for the listener, I think they should pause right now and ask that question because- Stop the video. <laughs> pause it really quick because I think libertarian philosophy is very innovative when it comes to these answers. Um, but do you just wanna kind of introduce yourself and how you, came to libertarianism and what you think libertarianism libertarianism well yes i i'm 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 a very sad example of a libertarian because i i mean i was well into my 50s before the light dawned here what was i before that well it's hard to know it wasn't politically actively anything much my social inclinations are conservative and still are um and so therefore, if I had to be anything politically, I suppose I would have been a political conservative as well. Mm -hmm. And indeed, I was active in Irish politics in the 90s, uh, you know, in, in electoral politics and so on. Very unsuccessfully, may I say, spectacularly so. Um, but that's, which is good, which is great, because it would have been the worst thing ever to have happened to me if I'd been successful. <laughs> As, you know, the old, the old saying goes, be careful what you wish for, you might get it. <laughs> and uh, so, um, yeah, and um, so what happened was uh, I've always been kind of fascinated by money. Uh, and not only by the fact that I never seem to have enough, <laughs> but it's, it, you know, it's very strange that people are willing to give you goods and services for grubby bits of paper. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and try this experiment sometime, but 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 not in reality, because you're going to get arrested, okay, by the IRS or the FBI or somebody. You know, do up your own fancy, you know, Liam um, banknote, okay, from the Bank of Liam, and tell them, you know, it's tw twenty Liams, and you try try to see if anybody make it look good. They make it like look like a greenback, right? 
And uh, no, you better not do that either because that's illegal. I forgot you can't do that, right? Okay, but let's do a thought experiment, okay? This is not practical. Um, and, and take it along to your local store and and say, you know, when the guy says, when, you, when you're paying for your pizza, uh, you say, which would you rather have? You know, would you rather have five of this, this old fuddy-duddy US, you know, Federal Reserve stuff? Or could you have 20 of the new Liam's? And, you know, if he doesn't put a gun in you, I mean, you're probably lucky. <laughs> okay. Why is it that somebody's willing to take this bit of paper and not that bit of paper? Because, I mean, apart from the graphics and the design and anything else, when it comes right down to it, they're both bits of paper. Okay, right. So it is kind of mysterious when you mm -hmm. think about it. And of course, one of the things that's happened as a result of COVID is that we're now going to see the, the assault on cash, uh, you know, is is uh, is ramping up. And you know, the government would love us to move everything electronically because then you'd know you'd have no access to your money except through an institution. It'll be done electronically. You couldn't just squirt it away under a under mattress. Um, so. It, it, it's it's very strange that it should be so. So I was always puzzled by by money. Anyway, to come to come to the uh, the point here, um, a friend of mine in the Department of Philosophy in University College Dublin was going off on sabbatical uh, to Germany. He was interested in uh, German philosophy, and when he came back, oh, we'd we'd conversed about this. So when he came back, he brought me back a book called "The Theory of Money and Credit." by somebody called Ludwig von Mises. I had no idea who Ludwig von Mises was. And I don't know if you've ever looked at the theory of money and credit. I mean, this is a, without wishing to be sort of racist in any way, this is a German book. I mean, this is a serious book, <laughs> okay? This is not frivolous. Okay, my, my former professor, uh, said to me one time, he said, Mr. Casey, when you're reading uh, books in foreign languages, remember he said that when you when you uh, read a book in German, you should read only the footnotes. <laughs> and he said, when you're reading a book in French, you should never read the footnotes, they're only there for decoration. <laughs> okay. But in any way, this is a Teutonic work. I mean, this is a serious, like, you know, 500 page tough work. But the point is that as, so as I think many of your listeners will have had, there are times in your life when a subject comes up, which even if it's difficult, you will grasp and put the effort into trying on to understand because it answers a question that's actually really live for you. Okay, and so my question about what money was and how it came into being and how it worked and what it did, those were live questions for me. So when I read this book, it was like, it hit me with a kind of blinding revelation because it explained how money, not only how money, not, not only speculatively how money had come into being, but when you thought about it, how money must have come into being, which was really exciting to me. And then, of course, I started reading the other works by Mises, okay, bureaucracy and uh, and so on, uh, human action, of course. And then okay, once, once you start down that path, as most people who are listening, if they know anything about where I'm coming from will realize you're going down the rabbit hole because very soon you're into the Mises Institute and then it's all Rothbard and then there's about a million, hundred million books to read and you know there's all sorts of stuff. Anyway, so I devoured all of this because I was in the end. So within about two years, I mean, sorry, I became almost instantly uh, sort of a libertarian because I realized what was going on here, but it took me about two years reading voluminously. So when I'm really interested, you read really fast, you devour stuff really quickly, at least I do anyway. And uh, 
So that was in the early noughties of this millennium. And then um, I had obviously come to know the Mises Institute and I thought, oh, I think I'll go visit. So I went to the, what was then the Austrian Scholars Conference in 2007 and I gave a paper and nobody knew who I was. It was like, who is that masked man? <laughs> well, we weren't wearing masks then, but you know, so that was kind of fun and that's it really. Uh, but but the, the key point to take away from, apart from the explanation of money, was that the whole, the whole approach of Austrian economics um, did something which I thought was impossible to do. Because anybody who's into philosophy and familiar with the notion of the synthetic a priori, which comes from Kant, the idea is that there can be, in other words, something which is synthetic uh, is meant to be informative and therefore a matter of, of experience and so on. Something which is analytic is true by virtue of the meaning of the words. And therefore it seems impossible that you could have something which is both synthetic, if you like, informative, and at the same time, uh, and uh, a priori, in other words, known somehow in advance. Um, and, and Kant argued for this, of course, as a critique of pure reason. But most people would normally think of the synthetic a priori as applying only to the realm of logic and mathematics. But the really interesting thing about Austrian economics is, it, is that it puts a form of the synthetic a priori at the heart of economics. I mean, let me explain what I mean by that. Um, many people, including myself, would have thought that in an exchange, one person gains and another person loses. And to use the, the language of game theory, that, that exchange is zero sum, right? If I win, you lose. If you win, I lose. A bit as if we were playing uh, poker or something. You know, obviously, you know, if there are two of us left in the game, there's a pot on the table. Okay, one of us is going to win, one of us is going to lose. Right? That's how it works. Okay, so people would think, people I think, including myself, um, thought that all sorts of exchange, economic exchange, particularly, of course, the whole capitalist system was built, if you like, on this idea of, z of zero sumness, which meant that some people were gaining at the expense of others. So where does the synthetic a priori come in here? And it comes in in this point. Um, in an uncoerced exchange between any two human beings, okay, now prescinding from everything else, so let's leave everything else to one side, if you and I agree to an exchange, okay, I have, for example, let's say I have this really, really nice pen, okay, and you've got, you've got a really nice hat, and I've got lots of pens, but I don't have a hat, and you've got lots of hats, but you don't have a pen. So we, we, we get talking, and I say, oh, William, how about this? We do a little swap. I give you my pen for your hat, and you go, oh, okay, great, and we swap. In an uncoerced exchange, both people gain. Not only is it the case that an uncoerced exchange is not zero sum, it's actually positive sum. And this being positive sum is not only a contingent matter of experience that we have to investigate to find out, it has to be the case. Otherwise, the exchange wouldn't take place. Now that, you see, remember coming from philosophy where the synthetic a priori is really linked to mathematics and logic, Right, which are abstract entities. And here, the, here is the synthetic a priori working in what is a very practical area. Now, the point is, you may not know, you may change your mind. Okay, people do. So, but, you know, have you ever bought anything on impulse? Yeah. And, and when somebody says, why did you buy that? And you go kind of foolishly, you say, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And that's exactly right. It seemed like a good idea at the time. Even if your buyer's regret is more or less instantaneous, nonetheless, at the point of the exchange, 
okay, you exchanged your hat from my pen because you thought you were making on the deal. Not a whole lot, you're not going to get rich, you're not going to be able to retire, okay? And I thought I was getting something that I needed more than my pen. And mm -hmm. that's how it works. And that was a real shock. Uh, it's hard, I mean, that may not seem like people go, wow, you're easily impressed or you're easily shocked. But that was a like for somebody coming from the world of philosophy, that was like a slap in the face with a wet fish. I mean, I was just, you know, went, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's called subjective value theory, right? Yes. Yeah. And what is there any, like, I guess, valid criticism against it that you've heard? Like, will someone say that, for instance, um, someone's environment caused them to buy an item and they actually lost? in that transaction? Like, is, has there been any argument that you've actually felt challenged by? No, because it's, as I said, because it's a synthetic a priori, once you grasp its truth, you, you see not only is it in fact true, but it has to be true. And of course, somebody can say, well, hang on a second. I mean, you know, to come back to the point of buyer's regret. Um, let's take a classic example. <laughs> let's take a certain island off the east, northeast coast of the United States. And let's go back to the 17th century. And I happen to be a person of Dutch ancestry. And I would like this island. And I've got a superfluity of beads and trinkets. And you were a Native American who owns the island or whose tribe owns the island. And you've got hundreds of these islands. Okay. I mean, there's nothing special about this one. Right. So what you don't have, however, are some nice beads. So we trade. I give you some nice beads and some trinkets and you give me the island and we're both happy. Now, looking at this 400 years later, you might say, well, hang on a second. That's Manhattan, right? I, okay. I mean, that's worth how much? Well, the trouble is, of course, it wasn't worth anything like that at the time. And the subjective valuation of the owner, okay, vis-a-vis -vis the, the beads and trinkets was that the beads and trinkets were worth more, right? And again, from the point of view of the person of Dutch ancestry, the opposite was the case. So yeah, circumstances change, okay? And I mean, what, what, what Austrian economics is doing is not saying that you can sit in your armchair and do all your economics by just kind of gazing into the sky and kind of thinking deeply. But it says that some things are not up for grabs. So that when you see, for example, changes, okay, let's take the law of supply and demand. Okay, the you know which so so which is nothing not particularly Austrian if it comes to that. I mean you know even standard economics has it. But so one thing would say that if other things being equal and notice that's very important. Other things being equal, if you have a supply of a good, okay, and and a price and they're stable, and then the supply were to increase, then other things being equal, the price of the good will go down. Hmm? Right now, suppose in a real life situation, you actually check on the supply of a good and you see that the supply has doubled. But in fact, the price hasn't gone down. Oh, does that invalidate the law? And the answer is no. What it tells you is that there are other factors in the environment, perhaps government regulations, who knows what it is, it could be anything, right? Which is interfering, if you like, with how that law. So what, what the law does, if it isn't, if you like, exemplified in the pure form in the actual outcome, it tells you that there are other factors, interfering factors, as it were, in the environment, which are affecting what actually goes on. 
And so the, 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 um, the, the uh, subjective theory of value works in the same way. You could go, I mean, you could go to some place uh, where, I don't know, where Europeans have never been before, and you might witness an exchange or what looks like an exchange between two people. And as you look at it, let's say a person is exchanging, uh, let's just call it A for B, right? And you go, wow, I really love to have A. I mean, that's incredibly valuable, right? And he gives this away for something that you think is absolutely worthless. Well, without being rude, who cares what you think? Okay, you're not the one making the exchange, right? These people are, have their own valuations of A and B respectively, and are making judgments about the reciprocal values and are exchanging on that basis. Now, once they come in, of course, into the larger economic system, it may well be and probably will be the case that their valuations of these entities will change and change radically. Mm -hmm. But that's a matter of empirical fact. What won't change is the subjective theory of value. Yeah, so that actually goes to another question I wanted to ask later, which is about, um, you mentioned it briefly in your book about you're not so concerned about the consequences as you are the actual rights-based libertarianism. Um, so maybe can you explain what the zero aggression principle is and then talk about why you, why you value natural rights as opposed to consequences? Yes, yes, I'll do that. So the zero aggression principle says that you may not initiate or threaten to initiate physical aggression against the person or property of another. That's it, it's very simple. Um, now, if somebody said, why, which is not an unreasonable question. I mean, suppose I'm bigger than you and stronger than you and you've got something I want and I can take it from you. I go, hey, zero aggression principle, who cares, right? I'm gonna take it. So, I mean, and you, you're there protesting as I hold you down with my foot on your neck and take you running off with your goods. And I go, zap, smap, who cares, right? So the question is, uh, what kind of justification can you give for this principle? Now, before I come to the, my answer to that question, I think you have to realize and other people have to realize that in any area of human inquiry, there are always things that are taken for granted. There is no completely neutral starting point, right? It, whatever it is, you're gonna have, you have to stand somewhere. You have to take something for granted. Mm -hmm. Other things being equal, I think it would be good to take the fewest things as possible for granted because I could have an incredibly rich theory which has, oh, I don't know, 5,493 principles and I'm taking them all for granted. And you go, oh, okay, that seems a little bit kind of ad hoc, <laughs> right? Okay, so I'm working with one. And so if you can justify this in one way, so you can justify it on broadly utilitarian grounds. That is to say, you can justify it on the grounds that if it is followed, it will bring about consequences that in the aggregate are beneficial to rather than detrimental to people, okay? And so, and, and that's, not, that's not mad. I mean, you know, we make these kind of um, cost-benefit decisions about many things uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. It's perfectly reasonable in some areas of life. But there is another approach to decision-making both in ethics and in economics, uh, but particularly in ethics for the moment, where the answer to the question doesn't seem to be properly given if you do it, if you try to do it in terms of consequences. So let me take a, a, a sort of an example here. Suppose you're walking down the street with your friend and you find some adult sticking pins in the eyes of a very small child. And you probably say, hello, uh, I 
don't think you should do that. And the person then would say, well, why is that? And you go, well, uh, and while you're thinking of an answer and your friend says, oh, well, you know, I'm a utilitarian. Uh, you know, there's a balance of pleasure over pain and all of the rest, and the child is in a lot of pain. And therefore, you know, when you take all that into account, this is a bad thing to do. But then you're, you're the, the assailant with the pin says, well, I get a huge amount of pleasure out of this. I'm a really like, <laughs> I'm a weird guy. Okay, and so and so the kid is screaming in pain. So what? I mean, it's, the more he screams, the more pleasure I get. So on my world, the balance of, of pleasure over pain comes solidly down on the pin sticking exercise. I, on the other hand, would say, I don't give a tuppenny damn about what the balance of pleasure and pain is here. There are some things that are simply not right to do, right? Regardless of the consequences, right? And so when it comes to, to the zero aggression principle, I would defend it on the grounds, uh, I was sorry, I, I would say you can defend it in a utilitarian way if you choose, but you give hostages to fortune if you do so. Because if anyone could ever demonstrate that the implementation of the zero aggression principle actually led in fact to less flourishing rather than more flourishing, then you are intellectually obliged to give it up. Mm -hmm. And I'm not prepared to do that. Because to me, while I actually believe that it does actually lead to an increase in benefits over disbenefits, right? As a matter of fact. But that's not why I'm pushing. I'm pushing it because I think it is right to do so. Now, what happens if somebody denies it? I'm not talking practically, but but rather conceptually. Well, let's take the example of the of the, the principle of contradiction that we find in Aristotle. Aristotle says that a, pro a, a proposition cannot both be true and false in the same respect at the same time, right? Um, and suppose somebody says, oh, well, I reject that. Now, you've got a problem here because in order to reject a proposition, you have to assert it's contradictory. But if you're rejecting the principle of non-contradiction, the only way you can do so is by making implicit use of the principle of contradiction. So you're stuck, right? There's no coherent way to reject the principle of non-contradiction. What about that? What about the zero aggression principle? Are you stuck in the same way? Is it incoherent in the same way? And the answer is no. It would be nice if it were, but it's not. But if somebody really rejects the zero aggression principle, and I don't mean just, you know, in, a, in an argument or just to annoy you or because it's 12 and you're having pizza and he just wants to wind you up. But really, somebody like Max Stirner in the 19th century, who effectively is one of the few people who actually does that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, re then what you have to say to him is, okay, well, what you're saying isn't incoherent. It's not self-contradictory. It's not, in that sense, intellectually self-destructive. But what it means is that if you reject the zero aggression principle, you have no principal ground on which to stand if somebody uses force or violence against you in situations other than where you are aggressing. You can obviously physically resist, of course you can physically resist, but you can never say you shouldn't do that. You cannot use normative language because you've rejected the zero aggression principle. And so my challenge to somebody who, who rejects the zero aggression principle is, okay, friend, let me see you live that out. 
Okay, and I used to in, in my class on uh, on anarchy law and the state, I used to sort of try to exemplify this by uh, going to one of the students and saying, uh, "Tim, can I borrow your pen for the moment?" And he goes, "Oh, oh sure, professor." And then I would take it, and then uh, while I continued to talk, I would put it in my pocket, and I would look at his face, and and he's he's going, "What?" And he's thinking, "How can I ask him for it back?" Polite, and I go, "Oh, sorry, was there a problem?" And he goes, well, yeah, you've got my pen. And I go, so? <laughs> and that's, that's so, I mean, so everybody and anybody who wants to say, you've got my pen, okay, meaning give it back to me, is making use of the zero aggression principle, okay? And if you're not prepared to accept it, you have to be prepared to have somebody bash you on the head and steal your stuff and not have a principled leg to stand on. Yeah, so getting into property um you mentioned how zap rests on property rights mm. do you think that there are any again to go back to one of my previous questions um do you think that there are any legitimate critiques against property and do you base your your property rights in like the lock-in conception of property uh first of all i think that Every society, every culture, every political system has some conception of property, though those conceptions will obviously differ. So, so the answer to your first question is yes, we all have conceptions of property. The only question is which one makes the most sense or has the fewest drawbacks. Uh, to answer the second the part of your question, no, I don't base it on the lock-in principle, actually, because I think Locke's principle is good insofar as it goes, but it doesn't actually go far enough. And I'll explain why. Um, Locke, the, the Lockean principle, which is, well, let me ask you, how would you explain the Lockean principle to somebody? I mean, what would you say? I would probably say that the way something becomes yours is when you mix your labor with a substance or something yeah. along those lines. Yeah, well, okay, you're exactly right. But how do you do that? Well, there are, there are sort of paradigm cases. So for example, if I take clay and, and I make a ball and I throw a pot in a, some kind of sense, which is sort of semi-metaphorical, I've kind of mixed my labor, I've shaped it. I've used the force of my hands and my skill to shape it. But of course, how does that explain how I own a sheep? Hmm. How, how have I mixed my labor with a sheep? Even if, even if I helped with the lambing, how have I mixed my labor with anything? And in fact, there seems to be a category mistake going on here, which is labor is an activity of a human being, but the stuff of the world is matter, right? And I'm not sure that they're working on the same plane. So um, I think that, as I said, I think there's a subset of examples where the Lockean theory actually works, but I don't think it does the entire work that you need to do. And in fact, here I'm a Kantian. And I think Kant, interestingly enough, who doesn't get much credit uh, for his practical politics, is I think right on this. He says effectively, you have a right to whatever you can actually defend against the incursions of others. <laughs> okay, uh, let me go back again to explain why, for example, the Lockean, why you're gonna to have to really work, work really hard to get Locke to explain how certain things become your property. Suppose, for example, that you lay claim to a woods Right now, if you chop down the tree, I suppose you could say, well, you've used your labor to chop down the tree. But suppose your purpose in owning the wood 
is not to actually knock down any tree. It's sit on your porch at night and look at the trees. How, do, how is that supposed to work? <laughs> okay. How would you justify owning the trees when you haven't done anything? Okay, right? But, but Kant would say, hang on a second, what you've done is you've, you've actually fenced them off and you're prepared to defend them against others. Now, it gets complicated because it's not just a matter of might is right. It's just that as, as things happen, okay, when, when um, okay, let, let me start again. Uh, if you're the only one in the world, property makes no sense. <laughs> you say, I own all the world. And you go, yeah, big deal. There's no one else around. Okay, so the idea of actually property is there's a there's an element of exclusion. When I say something is my pen, as I think from somebody else's pen, I mean I can do with it what I like. I can write with it when I want. I can put it in my pocket. I can break it up. I can sell it. I can trade it. I can do all of these things, right? Um, so the idea of exclusion. There's a whole. There may be about fourteen or fifteen factors which are connected to property. But the main one I think is as it were that is exclusively yours and so on. Now. What happens then is we don't have a problem. In other words, if, like if, if there are only two of us on the entire continent of North America, chances are we're never going to run into each other, all right? But you know, as you get more and more people, you're going to find that you're going to have neighbors, all right? So you've you're 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 tilling your own little bit of ground and you're doing your work and then you're growing your crops, and then somebody else kind of comes next door, right? Now, he he's going to say. If you say, well, I like your carrots, and he says, well, fine, I'll trade you some. You say, no, no, I'm not interested in trading. I'm going to take them. He says, well, oh, okay, but you know, I'm the one who did all the work on this. This is the kind of semi-locking bit. And he says, well, why, why don't we trade? Because fighting is a bit destructive, and you might lose, and you might lose your life, and so on. And, and, why, and trading is a whole lot better. We both gain on this. So eventually, in a context where, where people are actually banging up against each other, okay, from an initial de facto situation, Right, where people have established through usage, as it were, uh, a claim of practical ownership, as it were, on the property. Right, the de jure, the legal entity, arises, which involves the mutual recognition by people living together in a community of not only my practical ownership of the property, but my right to it. Right? Now, that doesn't take place at an instant. It takes place over time, and nobody can put their finger on it. But that is, I think, the story of how it actually works. And once you've got that in place, then the rest falls out, because then you have property exchange and sale and all of the rest. Okay, So everything falls out very straightforwardly. Yeah, the reason I ask is just because um, in a lot of the philosophy classes I've taken, they, from socialist professors or professors with socialist sympathies, they will they'll use like the Lockean example of you you drip Kool-Aid in an ocean and the, the ocean yeah. mixes with the Kool-Aid and then yeah, you, that's Robert Nozick's example here. Right, exactly. Hmm. And um then then they seem to argue and what what's implicit in their argument is that before anyone has property, it it almost is owned by everyone. Um <laughs> And then they, they, they seem to say, well, since this Lockean mixing of labor is kind of arbitrary, there's not a point at which it goes from everyone owning it to one person owning it. So like, what do you think, where do you think that the socialist kind of gets mixed up with that? Then? Well, I think, well, I think they're right in a sense to critique 
a version, a kind of caricature of the Lockean position. Okay, mm -hmm. and I think that's one of the problems we have if we defend the Lockean theory as the best and sole criterion of the origin of property rights. I think that's a mistake. So we've given hostage to fortune there. We can't defend. But the problem is, how, so what would it mean to say that we all own everything? I don't know what that means. Uh, do, do I own something in Mongolia? Is there a little part of Mongolia that belongs to me that I don't know about? Or does somebody in Japan own a piece of my front garden? If you start thinking about what that actually means, we all own everything. It doesn't actually seem to mean anything. So here I think is where we have to take some kind of historical or kind of proto-historical approach along the lines I suggested. Okay, and okay, accepting the 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 um, uh, I don't know, theories of anthropology, generally speaking, it would seem like human beings uh, originated in Africa, okay, uh, who knows, 100,000 years ago in their present form and so on. At that time, there wouldn't have been anybody in Mongolia or in Ireland. So what sense would it have made to say of those Africans in what is now Tanzania, that they owned Ireland. <laughs> I don't even know what to make of that claim. It doesn't make any sense. They don't even know it's there. <laughs> they're not. They're not going there. They're not going to arrive. You know, for another 50,000 years. It doesn't make any sense. So, the the schema I presented, where you, as it were, um, you move from a situation. So, in my in my Freedom's Progress, what I try to do is I try to give an example of how we move from from a situation of kind of pasturage, where people are moving uh, from a situation where they have flocks, and what they're moving is they're moving from pasture to pasture, and but even there, you run up to you run into problems of we can't all be here, right? We see in the range wars <laughs> in the West in the 19th century. But we even, we even see it in the Bible. Abraham and Lot have to part ways, okay? And, and they say, well, I'll go over here, you go over here, whichever you want, or let's choose sides and go, because there's not enough here for all our stuff. And um, more recent example in Australia, I mean, the original inhabitants uh, who are effectively hunter-gatherers of you know the kind that we haven't really experienced anywhere else recently, um, I, I had a friend, one of my professors was an anthropologist as well as being a philosopher, and he had done field work in, in uh, Australia. And uh, I said to him, you know, do they have a conception of property? And he says, yeah, they, they have a range around which they work. They're, they may not always be in the same place and they don't have fields and they don't plant cotton and they don't, and so on, but they have an area that they regard as theirs. Now it's communal, it belongs to the tribe as a whole, but it doesn't belong to the other tribe. Okay, yeah. that's the point. And and while the while the, the 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 boundaries may be kind of porous and shifting and so on, nonetheless, it's quite clear that in the core areas here and the core areas here, this belongs to this tribe and this belongs to this tribe. And we may kind of be a little bit fuzzy here and there. But nonetheless, if these guys are coming over here, there's going to be trouble. Right. So that's the communal side. And then we, there's a whole story about how you get individual property out of that. But, you know, that's probably more complicated than I think we need to go. And then just one more note, because you brought up Nozick. Nozick yeah. just believed that you had to have transactions or interactions that were 
peaceful transactions, I guess, or how, how would you, how would you present that? Well, Nozick's book, Anarchy, State and Utopia has to be one of the most annoying books ever written by anyone. And I say this, by the way, this is no disrespect to Nozick, who was one of those incredibly brilliant, annoyingly brilliant people that we've all known, who had read 27,000 more books than you had ever read and was always the first with his hand up in the seminar and could think up like five impossible scenarios to disprove something. He's an incredibly brilliant guy. The trouble is that Anarchy State in Utopia is actually three books in one. And he starts off with a ringing defense of rights uh, in, in the kind of way in which I'm talking about uh, the ZAP. In other words, there are things that people simply cannot do to you. Right, and you go, whoa, you're going like, this is gonna be great. I'm on for the ride. But then without going into details, and again, I deal with this briefly in my uh, Freedom's Progress, he compromises on this later on in the book. And he says, well, there are times when people are justified in taking, in get, taking things from you that you want taken from you, provided they're willing to compensate you. Mm. Right, and I'm going mm, no, <laughs> okay, because that you see violates the subjective theory of value. Right, because I mean, it may be irrational, it may be crazy, I may be foolish not to be prepared to sell out and give my, you know, do a trade. But uh, but whether or which, it's my business. Right? Um, just take a practical example here. In, uh, I don't know what it was like, I mean, in the States, the government was uh, centrally involved in allocating land to the railroads. But in Ireland, by and large, because the property was already well established, um, the railroads had to buy the land that they needed to build. So, and what they, what they tended to do, okay, so if you're building, say, a 100, 100 mile long railroad, okay, you, you, what you don't want to do is to buy 49 miles on this side and 49 miles on that side, and then discover that the guy who wants the property in the middle, which connects up the two bits, is not prepared to sell. <laughs> okay, because what are you going to do then, right? Okay, uh, so what they tended to do was they tended to plot two or three routes, A, B, and C. And they went into all the landowners along route A, and they said, this is the deal. We will give you so much per acre for your land, provided that, everyone is prepared to sell and nothing is settled until everything is settled. And they would say the same to B and they would say the same to C. So there was a competitive situation, but nobody was forced to sell, right? And so that's how you do it, right? So, uh, but now we just have, you have eminent domain, okay, which says the state can take it if, it, you know, for probably good, but it turns out it goes to some corporation, <laughs> okay? And we have here compulsory purchase orders, which are the same sort of thing. And it's for the good of the whole people. And you turn out, well, when you look at it, maybe, maybe not, right? But in any event, you know, it's my farm and if it's my farm and I don't want to sell, I don't see why I should be forced to do so. And that's where, again, a, a, like an Austrian economist and libertarian would say, mm, tough, that's not how it works. Yeah, and I think we'll get into public goods in a little bit, but uh, that was all the preface, um, what I wanted you to <laughs> come on for. Uh, so with regard to speech, how does... I guess, I guess we need to talk about how one has property in themselves and then talk about how that applies to my house, my rules. Yeah, the, so if you ask somebody to give an example of property, 
um, they'd probably pick up the pen or talk about their iPad or something like that. And so your kind of standard paradigm examples of property would be things other than yourself. Okay, now it can get a little bit sort of mystical because how do you own land? Land is a sort of strange thing to, if you think about it because it, some of the things that you can do with other pieces of property, you can't do with land. So for example, I mean, I can smash my pen <laughs> if I choose to do so, be foolish, but I could do it. How would I do that with my land? It's kind of weird, right? Uh, so so not, not every note, not every characteristic of property attaches to every form of property. Um, so how then do you own yourself? Well, it's the sort of limiting case. It seems rather strange. It's like a reflexive thing. So in other words, when I own a pen, it's like a relationship between me and the pen, right? I, and so I have established that I have the exclusive right to make use of this and no other may make use of it without my permission or without my selling it or exchanging it and so on. And you think, well, does that actually apply to yourself? And the answer is from a libertarian perspective, yes. In that sense, even though I'm not external to myself, okay, so I, I, there's no external relation. Nonetheless, if there's anything, I mean, if, if I can say of a pen that you may not use it without my permission, how much more can I in fact say of myself that you may, may, you may not make use of me without my permission? And in that sense, you own yourself. Now, by the way, this is entirely within the world, this worldly realm. I'm not making any theological judgment here, right? Because as a Christian, I happen to believe that as it were, sort of God in some strange sense owns us. That's another issue and I don't want to go there, right? But I, so I'm not, I'm not making any judgment on that, but I'm just saying within the bounds, this worldly bounds, each person owns himself and owns himself more exhaustively, more exclusively, okay, than he could possibly own anything else. As this applies to freedom of speech, um, you, you mentioned how you are not a freedom of speech fundamentalist, as a lot of conservative people are. So um, do you kind of want to talk about the relationships between property and freedom of speech here? Well, yeah, let me, make, let me pick up the point first about free speech fundamentalism. So mm -hmm. We've all met, unfortunately, probably people in our lives whose idea of being frank and forthright is just to be bloody rude. Okay. Uh, and so I accept the principle that we as libertarians, sorry, as a libertarian principle, that we can say anything we want about anybody to any extent on or with our own property. Right. So, the, uh, but I reject the right of any power or authority other than myself and whatever agreements we've reached with other people to regulate my speech. Does that mean then that I'm saying, yeah, we should go around saying whatever we like about people? The answer is no, of course not. We live in community with people, right? Uh, you're walking down the street and you see somebody who weighs like 350 pounds. And whatever you might think, what you don't do if you've been well brought up is to go up and say, my God, you're really, really fat. <laughs> okay. Why would you want to do that? 
it's a, you know I mean so there are lots of ways in which we our speech is controlled and moderated and properly so entirely appropriate by the way but it doesn't have to be by legal means and indeed most of what we say and more importantly of what we don't say in any given day or in any context is not regulated by a fear of legal norms or sanctions it's actually by social norms and sanctions. That's why somebody who's, you know, uh, somebody who's been properly brought up is so annoying because they simply haven't learned the difference. Uh, you know, so they're like people, for example, who, when you say, how are you, proceed to tell you. I, I mean, not, not realizing the concept of phatic speech. So when I say, how are you, I'm simply saying, hello, Liam, I'm a human being, you're a human being, good to see you, we're in relationship. Okay, if I really want to know about the state of your health, I'll ask you, I'll say, you know, how's the hernia coming along or what happened, you know, with the physiotherapy. But when I say, how are you, I don't want an account of your illnesses, I don't want an organ recital. Okay, so we have all sorts of social ways of dealing with, you know, with, with making speech so that we don't gratuitously insult people and be annoying and all of the rest. Uh, yeah, but the problem with those who those who insist on legal enforcement is that when you when you bring in laws to regulate speech, it tends to crowd out other ways of doing it. And we see this phenomenon, by the way, in other areas as well. So when you bring in legal tender, of course, it crowds out, if you like, non-legal tenders or tenders that would have risen and so on. And um, and that's the problem. So then you then then it becomes sort of arbitrary. And so we have laws against defamation, right? And here, it's awkward. I mean, I would think in the libertarian society, there should be no such laws. And again, it doesn't mean that anything would go. There would be ways, in fact, if somebody made a claim that was false against you, which would have an effect, for example, on your ability to do business, you would have a, an agency, for example, that you could go to very quickly, who would look at the facts and then issue an authoritative pronouncement that they've looked at this and there's no grounds for that statement. I mean. What's the big deal? By the way, it wouldn't take four years as it would now in the courts to go through it, right? Okay, it would be really fast. And it will also be no presumption, by the way, that's what's printed, what's said in the media on, you know, on YouTube or on whatever it is, or printed in the papers or in books is actually presumptively true. Okay, and I think, I think one of the advantages, one of the um, good things about social media is it has kind of loosened the grip of what you might call the kind of publication I don't know what to call it, publication principle, which if something is published, there's a presumption that it must be true because otherwise they would let themselves open to an action for defamation. But all sorts of crazy things are said on social media. If you've ever gone on YouTube, I mean, I never make it a point, make, I make it a point never to read beyond, beyond the fifth comment. You know, they go off in tangents and then all the crazy people come in and so on. I mean, so I have no sympathy for people who say they're being bullied on social media. I go, what's happened? Does the switch not work on your apparatus, right? Turn it off, <laughs> don't read it, okay? Uh, crazy stuff. Yeah, so, so the point then is that speech is limited by factors and the principal factor that limits and controls speech in a libertarian society is property. So in my house, I can say whatever I want. It can be vile, it can be awful. It can be atrocious. Not a good thing, by the way. I'm not, I'm not, you know, advocating any of this. But you know, it's my house. On the other hand, uh, 
I am the only arbiter of what may or may not be said in my house. So if I have people over and they are, in my judgment, and remember it's my house, in my judgment, they are being offensive and causing distress to my other guests. I would, in the first instance, take them to one side politely and say, Tom, I, you know, I mean, I know you have strong feelings in this area, but you're making my other guests uncomfortable. So I would really would prefer it if you changed the subject or didn't express yourself in quite such a vehement way. And if he said something like, well, I have a right to speak freely, I would go absolutely outside my door. <laughs> Goodbye. And the same is true if I have a newspaper, the same is true if I hire a hall. If I hire a hall for a public meeting, it's my meeting. <laughs> okay, I may appoint somebody to chair it and so on, but they're doing it under my direction. And, and the chair then will determine who speaks and when and for how long and in what circumstances. Right. So in that sense, uh, the right to speak is determined by, if you like, your access to property. The problem, of course, in our, in our contemporary society is that we have public spaces. And who owns the public spaces? Hmm. Well, if you put that question to somebody on the street, they say, well, we all do. And the answer is, no, you don't. Because just try setting up a tent in the middle of a five lane highway. Right. Okay, I mean, apart from the danger to yourself, okay, you're going to be moved on. You're going to say, well, hey, you know, I'm a citizen of the United States. I own one 350 millionth of the United States, and this is the piece I want right here. And they go, sorry about that, buddy, and they just move you off. So in, in practical terms, the owner of any particular piece of property is the person who gets to make and enforce the rules. Right? And therefore, it could be the local authority or the state government or the federal government or whatever it might be. They are the ones who actually own it. And the problem then is that you have competing parties, various parties, attempting to make use of that space. Okay, And they can only do so with the permission of the authorities. That's when you get like people going on parades and demonstrations and so on. And, uh, and so on. I mean, hey, if it's your property, you can have all the demonstrations you like. <laughs> it's your property. They can have all the demonstrations they want. It's their property. Problem is when it's common, allegedly, okay, rather public, then it belongs actually to the authorities and they're the ones who get to decide. But in a libertarian society, there wouldn't be any spaces like this. There would be common spaces, that's a different thing, but then we'd have rules for, for the use of that space and, uh, and, and private spaces and you would be the private owners would be the ones who determine how these are to be used. So there wouldn't be any problem about private speech. By the way, your listeners might, might be interested and even chilled to know that recently the Scottish government uh, was planning to introduce a hate crime law which would have criminalized speech in the privacy of your own home. Mm. That's terrible. Yeah, it is terrible. It's shocking. You can imagine the effect that would have. I mean, you, you'd be kind of like going dumb language to people. So you'd, you'd have uh, plausible denial, deniability about anything that, might, that somebody might allege you had said. It mm -hmm. would be awful. It, the, crimping, the cramping effect here on speech would be horrendous. Yeah, so that's interesting. If um, getting into your idea about the effect of ownership then, um, if that's the case and the law goes through, would you say that those the government is the effective owner of your home then? What would you say? I mean, probably I would. And then I, but that's where I would like to make a distinction between effective ownership and legitimate ownership. 
And do you do you make that distinction at all? Well, I mean, even now, if you think about it, suppose you buy a house, right? Um, and you pay the price to the owner and you're getting on with your neighbors and not bothering them and so on. And then somebody comes along and says, well, in order to live here, you're going to have to pay us, oh, I don't know, $4,000 a year. And you go, hello, I don't remember having a contract with you. How does that work? And they say, oh, well, we are the properly constituted government of this area and we provide all of these services and therefore you have to pay to contribute. And they go, well, hang on a second. There are lots of people who provide me with services, but that's normally the result of my contracting with them. So for example, the local grocery store doesn't come along and dump a bunch of groceries on my doorstep, whether I like them or not, and then send me a bill at the end of the year, right? I go down and I buy the groceries from them and they sell them to me and we get on just fine. Mm. What you're saying is we're providing you with service. And I think, well, yes, the services are good. I mean, insofar as they go, they probably could be better and probably cheaper, but nonetheless, I'd like to be able to buy them from somebody and contract for them. And I don't quite see how it is that you've muscled in on this particular deal. It looks as if, in fact, you're charging me $4,000 a year rent for my home. But you can only charge me rent for my home if I'm renting it from you, if in fact it's yours. You begin to see what's happening here, right? So in our present environment, the, the private property regime as we have is seriously compromised because what you can do in your property, when you can do it, to whom and in what circumstances, and whether or not you have to pay for the privilege of doing so, whether by, by paying taxes or getting licenses or whatever it might be, those are all an infringement of your property rights. So that while you thought you were lord of all you surveyed in your house and it was yours in a way, mm -hmm. you're actually engaged in a bipartisan arrangement to share this property with somebody else and not as a result of some decision that you made that you thought was a good one. It's like somebody else is kind of muscled in. Yeah, I guess, uh, do you think like, do you think that there's any important aspect of consent and tacit consent there? In the sense that they'll argue that you've tacitly consented by using the roads. And would you say, well, you need express consent or do you use a different tactic there? Yeah, the, the roads are the ones that come up all the time. It's like, Hey man, where were the roads come from? And you, well, yeah, it's like human beings, you know, 40,000 years ago, were waiting for the state to build roads and move from one place to another. Yeah, right. Sure. That's how it works. No, it doesn't work like that. And in fact, historically, as we know, the railroads were all built privately. The roads, turnpikes were built privately, the highway and so on, by and large. Uh, so, what? <laughs> uh, uh, and as I can't remember who it was, pointed out a long time ago, the, the lighthouse which seemed like public goods were actually paid for um, by those who owned the mooring rights in the harbor. So if you came in there, you had to pay. And some of that money went to supply the lighthouse, which meant the harbor was safe, so you would use it. So what's the big deal? There are ways in which we can do, we can do these things without having, as it were, to make tacit consent. But here's the interesting thing. I mean, there are, there are some limited circumstances in which you can consent you can contract by a course of action. They're extremely limited. So 
uh, both here and in the United States. If I go into a restaurant, sit down, somebody hands me a menu, I say, I will have the sirloin and some French fries, uh, lots of them, and so on. And that's great, they bring it to me and it's great and I eat it. And when I'm done, I go, oh, thank you very much. And I get up to walk out the door. And the person goes, oi, hang on a second, you haven't paid. And you go, pay? Who said anything about paying? I just came in and sat down and said, give me some of the stuff and you brought it along to me. I mean, hey, right? well, no. I mean, unless you're a Martian, okay, who is like, you know, to whom all of this is completely foreign, you think this is some kind of free food distribution center, everybody understands what goes on here, right? So when you sit down and when you order the food and you consume it in by virtue of that action, there's nothing tacit about it. It's actually quite concrete. You have contracted without, without the necessity to make any explicit declaration. You don't need to sign a form. You know, don't say, I hereby you know, engage that if you supply me with the following food and the circumstances, I will then, you know, life would be impossible. But, but notice, this is relatively trivial, right? I mean, it's important. Eating is obviously important, but the, the circumstances to which you can, you can contract by means of a course of action are extremely limited. In almost any, you can't buy a TV set. You know, you, you buy a TV set and you sign a form, the guy hands you a receipt, you hand over the money and it's a contract. Okay, it's, it's not a very complicated contract. I mean, there's not lots and lots of pages and no lawyers involved, but there's a contract. And even if you buy a newspaper from somebody and you, you pick it up in your hand while you're talking on the phone and you've got the newspaper and you hand the guy the $2, whatever, and he gives you the change, a contract is actually taking place. No words, right? So, but for anything of importance, houses, jobs, anything like that, we don't rely on implicit understandings or courses of action. You have to be explicit about the whole thing. So I would suggest that your property and its use and what you're going to be doing with like various goods and services is not a trivial matter, right? It's not something you can kind of implicitly or tacitly agree to. Mm -hmm. It's something you should explicitly or I mean, overtly agree to. And so let me give you one more example of how this works. I mean, in, in Ireland, not so long ago, the local authority, um, I suppose you like your little town, your local town government supplied uh, some services, including uh, refuse, uh, rubbish collection. It was pretty bad, um, shoddy and so on and ineffective. And you had to pay rates, which were a kind of form of local taxation. And then oh, some, some years ago, they abolished the rates, but then they increased the overall taxation. Okay. Uh, and then it came that we moved into the beginnings of what looked like the glorious dawn for privatization. And the local authority gave up their monopoly, if you like, of their right to collect your rubbish. And so private firms could now do it. And there are about four or five operating in my locality. And I can choose whichever one I want to make use of. Right? And the interesting thing is, compared to the service that the local authority supplied, this is actually quite sophisticated. We've got different colored bins. If, you want to, if you're into all that, I'm not, but it doesn't make any difference. Different colored bins, and they come and they charge you by weight and frequency, and they don't just send you a gross bill at the end of the year, which they kind of make up out of their heads. 
right? It has to do with the particular service. Now, the nasty thing, of course, that happens is that they reintroduce the property tax. So now, in addition, I'm paying the property tax, which used to pay for my refuse collection, and now I have to pay for private refuse collection as well. Such is life. But so that's what happens. And I have an, ex you know, so no one can come, uh, you know, some, 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 um, Bin, bin collectors can't suddenly come from another company and say, oh, we're going to empty your bins whether you like it or not, and we're going to send you a bill. No, no. I've got to contract with them explicitly. That's how it works. And uh, you have to admit, in the scheme of things, like rubbish collection isn't the most significant element in your life, but it's important, but it's not that important. Mm -hmm. And so as you move up the scale, you would expect to see more and more explicit agreements, right? Not tacit agreement. So, yeah. Has an agreement? No, 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 no. Yeah, and then to kind of apply this a little more to some more recent examples, um, what would you say to someone who said Donald Trump incited violence? <laughs> well, incitement. There are, in the common law, there are three inchoate crimes. Incitement, conspiracy, and attempt. Let's go back in reverse order and attempt. So if I try to kill you and fail, I don't get credit for being incompetent. <laughs> okay. My failure to kill you is not something in my favor. It's just an accident, right? right? And so this is a violation of the zero aggression principle, right? Um, conspiracy is the beginnings of a joint action between you and others. So it's not just sort of sitting around saying, oh, wouldn't it be nice if, oh, I don't know, somebody were to blow up the houses of Congress, you know, as you have a pizza and a beer and then go home. That's not conspiracy. Conspiracy is when you sit around and you say, okay, lads, let's figure out how we're gonna do this, right? Joe, you take charge of the munitions, you supply the explosives, Tim, and all of the rest. Now, now you're beginning an action, an aggressive action. And that's criminal, okay, by the zero aggression principle. Incitement, however, apart from some borderline cases, isn't the crime at all. If I go on YouTube and say, I think, let's take, let's take the Irish example for the moment, lest people think I'm putting my knife into the United States. Let's take Leinster House, which is where our government is, where, where our parliament meets. And I said, I think the guys who inhabit this are the lowest of the low, and I want to see them disappear. And the first thing way to do that is to, is to blow up the building. I think it would be a good idea to blow up the building. I think it would be a really good idea. Now, suppose there are people who are feeble-minded enough to think that what I say actually matters, and they, they run off, and they blow up the building. And then somebody comes and says, you are responsible. And I go, please explain to me how I'm responsible for that. What am I, some kind of Svengali? I'm controlling their minds, directing their actions. I gave them orders. I told them what to do. I threatened them with punishment if I didn't do it. How is this supposed to work, All right? If somebody, if I think, say something is a good idea and they go off and do it, maybe as a result of listening to me, that's their problem. It's not my problem. Now, I said at the start, there were circumstances in which this might change. And maybe this applies to the Donald Trump one. I'm not making any judgment on it. Mm -hmm. Let's go to Henry II. Henry II of England um, appointed his friend, his drinking buddy, Thomas Beckett, as Archbishop of Canterbury. 
And the reason he did this was he was getting a lot of grief from the church at the time. And he figured, hey, I'll get my guy in there, right? And then we get it all sorted out. The only problem was Thomas Becker got religion. <laughs> and when he became Archbishop of Canterbury, he became a gigantic pain in the ass to Henry II, who was seriously miffed about this, more annoyed about it than he would if the other guy had been there, because at least that guy was some, but this guy was his pal, and he was supposed to be his buddy and everything was supposed to work, right? And so he is supposed to have said, will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? Now, if you were in Henry's company when he said this, did he say, was this kind of an idle speculation? Okay, wouldn't it be great if Thomas Beckett wasn't there because he's such an annoying git? Or did he kind of go, wink, wink, nod, nod? Will no one rid me <coughs> of this <clears throat> turbulent priest? Right, looking at, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Now, what, what you get there isn't actually incitement. That's the beginnings of conspiracy. Now, the line, of course, is fuzzy, right? In most circumstances, I have no authority. I mean, I don't carry any weight. So I can say, if I, whatever I say, if somebody else does it because I said it, I'm going, well, I never knew I was that important. <laughs> okay. But so, so you might, you, you, could, you could run the Donald Trump one either way. You could say, this is, a, this is a case of Henry II, wink, wink, nod, nod. In which case, it's not actually so much incitement in any sense, it's actually the beginnings of a conspiracy and he's the leader and he's directing people he controls in some way to do nefarious deeds. Or else he's just using metaphorical language and saying, we've got to fight to preserve our rights and so on. And then if other people get excited and go off and start doing crazy things, who knows? Why would you say that it's not like, a sign that Donald Trump is going to commit the action in the future. Like some authoritarian out there could be like, well, him saying that is an instinct and that instinct alone is bad that will lead to. Action. Well, I don't, I don't really want to get into speculation on that because who knows? I mean, you know, um, I actually quite like Trump in many ways. I mean, he's a boor and he's, he's rude and he's gauche but he managed to kill fewer people than a recent president and and it's interesting to note that our that your current president has started off his auspicious reign by bombing the people again which i thought is great okay mm -hmm. uh not great for the people who are bombed by the way but anyway uh who knows i mean um i mean but, but by the way i should say of course as libertarian i regard all of these people if you like as effectively criminals mm -hmm. anyway Right. So I don't want to be seen as sort of defending them. It's only a question of judging one against the other. And, and when it comes right down to it, one is really no more criminal than the other. Yeah. Yeah. So what can I say? Yeah, I guess my question is really about like if, if someone who's not Donald Trump is just you or I and I and I say, well, it would be great if someone went and bombed the House of Parliament or something like that. Uh, what would your argument be? against someone who says well that instinct alone is criminal like um if they if they have that instinct they might act on it for instance well people might do all sorts of things but we don't we don't criminalize people for what they might do we criminalize them for what they do do okay or intend or clearly intend to do or have tried to do but failed to do mm -hmm. okay um and so i mean um as i say in 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 the book zap i said you know Hate speech is a strange, if you think about it. Um, I say, look, hate is a, an emotion or effective attitude, and it's not a good one. 
right? Um, it's not even good for you if you have it. But if you sit in your room hating all sorts of people in all sorts of ways, it's not a matter for the law, right? You're going to create obviously psychological damage to yourself and probably spiritual damage if you're a Christian as I am. So, but it's not a matter for the law. Law is not really concerned with what goes on in your head until it credibly issues in action against somebody else. Or rather, I should have said, that was the way the law used to be, <laughs> okay? But now with hate crime and so on, we are beginning to criminalize attitudes that people might have. How, now, however reprehensible they might be, and however much we might deprecate them, okay? Simply to hate somebody is not and should not be a crime. And it doesn't really matter, by the way, in criminal actions, what my motive is. It doesn't make any difference. So an example I give is, I say, suppose somebody attacks a woman and, and uh, severely injures her uh, to steal her money and her phone, right? And let's suppose another party does the same thing and inflicts the same amount of damage, both in terms of physical um, injuries and uh, removal of property, but actually does it not just if you like to take the property, but because he actually hates women and thinks they're inferior. Now, whatever about the moral aspect of the situation, and clearly, morally speaking, the second incident is more grave than the first. Legally speaking, it seems to me the actions are entirely the same. Okay. So if like somebody comes and punches you in the face because he hates people who live in Montana, right? or he hates you in particular because you've got a beard or whatever, or he just, and he hits another person just for the fun of it and causes the same amount of damage to their teeth or jaw and so on. The crimes are the same. As far as the law is concerned, it doesn't really make any difference why. Why motive may be relevant, for example, to the detection of a crime, but it's not actually relevant to the constitution of a crime. And that's the problem. And that's what we're getting now. And that's why it's so dangerous, because now, whereas the law, if you like, stopped, as it were, on the outside of your skin, now the law wants to move into your head. And, and well, where is it going to stop? Yes. So, so if someone were to somehow prove that language caused harm, like if I, if I said something mean to you, is the is the problem then that I'm not initiating force against you in the zero aggression principle? Or yeah, what? They're, they're, they, well, we, we need to come back to the whole thing about harm, by the way. So what do you mean by harm? Well, I mean, harm is rather nebulous. So an example I give in the book is if, you know, if you go to a, um, a reception and there's a limited amount of sandwiches and just before the guy gets you with the tray, there's only one sandwich left and the guy comes out of nowhere and just takes the sandwich, then the sandwiches for you. He's caused you harm. Is that a problem? Well, yeah, because you're not going to be hungry. But what has he done you wrong in some sense? Did you have a prior claim on that sandwich? Was it your property? Did he? And the answer is no. Okay. Or you're in a, you're in a queue to go to a theater or something like that, and uh, you know there's limited space, and uh, just like this, like sounds like a scene from the uh, Big Bang Theory. Uh, just as you get to the top of the queue, the guy says, "Sorry, no more space." 
well, well, the last guy who went in has done you harm because he's taken the seat that otherwise would have been yours. That's not a problem. Okay, so causing harm in that sense is unproblematic. Okay, and that's why when I deal with this in the context of Mills um, on liberty, I argue against this whole notion of harm because it's so nebulous, it extends. So people say free speech is harmful. And I go, well, it may or may not be. It depends on the circumstances. And there are circumstances, by the way, in which speech can be criminal. So in the common law, there was at least, there used to be a distinction between assault and battery. And people, generally speaking, in our local courts here, the district court, people rolled up on a Monday morning having had a kind of wild weekend and lots of people were charged with assault and battery. Now, was this a case of kind of pleonism? Were assault and battery the same thing? This is like saying twice, you know, whereas they say, I want you to do, I want to be able to do this without let or hindrance. Well, let and hindrance are the same thing. It's just two ways of saying the same thing. So was assault and battery the same thing? And the answer is no. Because you can assault somebody without battering them and you can batter them without assaulting them. Let me give you an example. If you're walking down the street and somebody comes up behind you quietly, okay, in rubber-soled shoes so that you don't know they're there, and he hits you over the head with a baseball bat, he has battered you, but he hasn't assaulted you. <laughs> you go, oh, really? Yeah. Because assault in the law was actions or words or behavior generally, which led a reasonable person to apprehend the infliction of violence, whether or not violence actually happened. So if somebody, if you're walking down the street again at, at 12 o'clock at night, okay, and it's dark, and somebody comes yelling your name and saying, Liam, you're a you're so-and-so, you've ruined my life, you took the last sandwich at the reception, I hate you, I'm going to batter your brains out, and he's running at you swinging this club, and he's not somebody you know, and not no reason to think it's a practical joke, you're going to be, you're going to think, hey, this guy is going to hit me on the head. Now, even if he never does it for whatever reason, let's suppose other people jump on him and restrain him, he has actually assaulted you. Now, very often, of course, the two went together. So somebody threatened, came towards you, if you like, swinging fists, and then connected. So until such time as he connected with your chin with his fist, that was assault. And when he actually connected with your chin, that's battery. So he would be charged with both. So there are circumstances in which language can, but you have to see that it is connected still to the infliction of physical violence. Okay, Saying to somebody, you're fat, is rude, <laughs> but it's not assault. Saying to somebody, I don't like you, okay, is unpleasant and maybe even be uncalled for, but it's not assault, okay? It may cause harm in some extended sense of harm. It may upset the person. It may cause them to cry. And it may be rude and it may be, should be deprecated and so on. All of these things are very possible, but they are controlled by non-legal factors. The law up to now has, if you like, being focused on, if by and large, the physical. Right? And once you start moving the boundaries on this one, I like to know where they're going to stop. And yeah. if we saw what we saw what the Scottish government are doing, it's right inside your own house. <laughs> yeah. Is there an argument that say like there is actually a physical tie? Will they say, for instance, or do you know of any argument where 
if someone says something that goes against my identity, they might say, um, it might draw me to suicide. Is there, a, do you know where, if they do try to connect it somewhere? Because I will hear that they say hate speech is violence. And it almost seems to be that they're saying that it can drive, or I've even heard them say that it's, it's deadly too. And I think well, that the connection is the suicide connection. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I mean, frankly, I mean, that just seems to be like rhetorically crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, so to say something like, for example, if you call into question the idea that a man can become a woman or vice versa, that somehow you're transphobic and you're questioning their existence. And I go, I don't quite see how I'm doing that. Okay. I'm actually making, I have no particular interest in your existence one way or the other. Questioning it is on. You look be existing, you're standing in front of me. So I accept, fully accept that you exist. I don't accept your self-description and I don't accept the theoretical claims you're making about this, but that's another matter. And if you find that hurtful, well, I'm actually sorry. And I, you know, but what can I do? I mean, you know, for me, it's the truth. I'm sure there are things you probably think about me, which I would find hurtful, but I'm perfectly prepared to live with that. I don't understand. This is the world in which we live. We're big boys and girls and we just get on with it, right? And I would say again, courtesy being what it is, you shouldn't go out of your way to make rude remarks about other people and so on and so forth. But, you know, in the context where you're discussing a particular issue and where you think the truth needs to be stated, you would be as courteous as you possibly could and if somebody then goes off and says, this is terrible, you've questioned my existence and then commit and kills themselves, I'm going, well, I'm sorry, guy, but you're crazy. I mean, you know, you're really disturbed if that's the case. Why would you want to do that? That's, mm -hmm. oh, sorry about that, but. That's a, actually a good point for you to um, be highlight how you can be a conservative socially, um, a Christian religiously and a libertarian politically. You might, there are these different spheres in which you might say that someone is, you know, a transgender as a woman is not a man. Um, you would say that in one sphere, but in another, you would be like, you would accept them as a human being. Well, of course. <laughs> in fact, I'm obliged to, and, and I'm obliged not only to accept them as a human being, but I'm obliged because of my Christian principles to seek their good, to work for them. I am obliged to love everybody. Mm -hmm. And loving isn't just kind of a, a sort of sentimental kind of feeling of being nice to people. Love it requires me in concrete circumstances to try as best I can with my limited resources to bring about the real good of other people, minimally, not to cause them any harm, if at all possible. Mm -hmm. right. Those are stringent requirements. <laughs> okay, and I fully accept those. But on the other hand, uh, you know, so what can I say? I mean, uh, like, so, I mean, I've just written a book on transgenderism and, and I'm arguing that it doesn't make any sense. Um, but I argue that the phenomenon of gender dysphoria is genuine and that people in that situation need to be treated properly and with respect. So, but, but the respect doesn't extend so far as to accept the belief that you can actually change your sex, because I think that is false. And that's the biggest reason why you would want to say it. I also don't think it actually particularly is a way of bringing about the good of that person. But I'm not going to shout and roar at people or vilify them or throw stones at them or do anything like that. That would be ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Absolutely ridiculous. And then as a libertarian, you can't use force either. Oh, no, absolutely not. I mean, I, uh, 
and this is the, my point I make repeatedly throughout my book on transgenderism, which is that it's really not so much about what other people do or want to do. I'm perfectly, as a libertarian, perfectly at ease with that. If you want to do these things or make these claims, go ahead. I'm not stopping you. I'm just saying the problem, my problem with all of this is <clears throat> not that, it's that the people, these, the, the transgender activists, not, not most of the people who are transgender, in fact, but those who are activists, um, have got to a situation where they have managed to persuade our lawmakers and our media that this is somehow something that must be pushed. And so, for example, there are laws which now force me and other people to, at the cost of having to shut up, to say that I believe that this is the case. And if I don't, I open myself up to legal punishment. And I'm going, hang on a second. There's a little bit of a symmetry here. I'm not imposing any laws on you. I'm not restricting your movements by imposing laws on you to do this or to do that or not to do this or not to do that. But you, through the agency of the state, are imposing laws on me. That's the problem. Yeah, and that's, and that's the distinction also between you being a political libertarian and a political conservative. Absolutely. A conservative might use force, say, I don't, I don't even know, like that one can't become a transgender, for instance. Well, no, I mean, you would, if you were a political um, conservative here, you, you, you could see it as your right to introduce laws which would forcibly prevent people from doing this or giving effect to their beliefs. Yeah. <laughs> and while I, while I, <laughs> excuse me, while I would agree that, that these are, they, these giving effect to these beliefs is probably not a good thing for those people. It's whole, it's a whole other thing when you start using the force of the law to prevent it from doing it. And that's the asymmetry. I make that point again, because I think that's vitally important. <clears throat> As a libertarian, I'm not, I'm not forcing anybody to do anything, okay? Um, but I'm resisting the imposition of force on me and on people like me. In fact, many people, I would think most people, in fact. But now, because of the force of the law, many people are scared and self-censoring. Not that they want to go around shouting at people or parading or objecting, but they want to be able to say things like, well, I don't think, a trans woman is actually a woman, I, and so on. I'm very happy if Tim wants to call himself Fenella and walk around in a dress, that's okay. I mean, hey, great, what can I say? It's a big world. I may think it's silly and all of the rest, but what, whether, you know, it's really none of my business. Yeah, I do it. and it also goes to the point of um, libertarianism not being a, I think you said it's not a complete moral theory because it's not necessarily connected. Um, you can have people if there's anyone out there that that here's what you're saying and they're like oh well libertarianism has to go now it's like no this this idea isn't necessarily connected to libertarianism you can be a libertarian and believe these things you can oh absolutely i mean see this is the libertarianism seems to me the sort of prime example of a broad church in other words two libertarians can agree on the core of libertarianism which is a zero aggression principle I pretty much disagree about everything else. <laughs> yeah. And that is the case. You can be a libertarian and be a social liberal. And you can be a liberal and be a social conservative. You can't be a political either because that, that violates libertarianism. But you can be socially conservative or socially liberal. Right? And both of those positions are consistent with libertarianism. So libertarian sets down a minimal condition not a maximal condition, but a minimal condition that must be met. And beyond that, it doesn't say, 
well, whatever you're having yourself, it's well, sorry, libertarian kind of waves his hand and says, well, it's not really this. I don't go any further than this. This is as far as this trend goes. <laughs> okay. After that, you've got to work out how you live your life with other people. And of course, many really important things, how we live with other people, are arrangements, marriages, family, children, jobs, uh, professions, arts, music, literature, uh, all of these things uh, go way beyond that. Libertarianism doesn't say anything in particular about those. Why should it? Yeah. And then um, do you want to just give the title of that book that you're working on? Oh, yeah. It's, it's no, which the one that's just come. I've got a book coming out on the 23rd of this month, this, this month being January 2021, called Hidden Agenda, A-G-E-N-D-E-R. Uh, and uh, it's so that's it's about the it's about transgenderism's struggle with reality. Of course, it's a pun on this side of the Atlantic because our pronunciation of A-G-E-N-D-E-R is agenda. Right. So, so that's that's where the pun is very funny uh so yeah that's coming out and the other book zap came out in 2019 and in between i had a book on the me too movement again making the point really from a libertarian perspective because my libertarianism runs throughout all of these books in the sort of social area uh but the good news for my long-suffering public is that this is the last work i'm going to be doing <laughs> in this area i need to preserve my sanity uh and i don't need any more um uh, disputes or arguments of this kind uh, and so on. I'm going to move on to more rarefied intellectual matters and uh, spend the last years of my life working in, the, in those areas. I think I've done my duty here and I've said what I had to say and that's it. People can like it or lump it. And you have a little more time because I, I do have one more question about Yeah. I, I just, because I'm really fascinated with the issue about public property and, and private property and how that relates um, with speech. So when it comes to public campuses, then is the, the solution something along the lines of like saying, well, you can't have your cake and eat it too. If you want um, this organization where you take the taxes from everyone um, and you call it a public good or whatever, um, you can't discriminate against speech or you allow property rights and you you're able to discriminate against speech. Is it something <laughs> that yeah see this is this is this is again where we get where we get all kind of mixed up look if if an institution were genuinely private let's just say it owned its own land it owned its own buildings it transacted its own business privately uh it it dealt with its customers or its agents or its students one-to-one uh, -one, uh, and so on it can set whatever rules it wishes it's its house it's sets its rules. If it wants to allow all sorts of speech anywhere, anytime, great. If it wants to control it through social means, fine. If it wants to say only people who subscribe to a particular political position can speak here, that's entirely its right. Now, if it's a university, however, you might think, well, it has a right to do this if it's an entirely private institution, but it may not be the right thing to do. There's a distinction. Right, because in its, because the university, by its very nature, is an institution that sets as one of its goals the pursuit of truth. And one way of doing this is through the clash of ideas. All right, but nonetheless, it even if it doesn't do the right thing, as it were, it has a right to do what it wishes. The problem is that there are almost no universities or institutions of higher learning that are private in that sense, because every single one is taking government money in one form or another. Now, 
if you think about the way in which you could finance higher education, and that, by the way, is like, what can I say, an issue in its own right. One way is that the government could supply funds to students, and then students could take it to whatever institution they wished. And then you would have the students engaging privately with whatever institution they wanted to deal with, and then they could go wherever they felt comfortable or uncomfortable, or whatever the case might be. But the problem is that the, the government is involved directly in providing finance through some kind of Mickey Mouse system of loans, which we know aren't really loans because they're never going to be paid back anyway, right? Uh, they never were, by the way. I mean, make a difference, right? It was just like a sort of deferred payment. It was a way of taxing the the unfortunate barbers and hairdressers and everybody else who had to pay the taxes to fund the lifestyle of students in these institutions. But the problem is that then when you are the major supplier of funds to an institution, the institution is no longer private. It's you are in receipt and therefore the fund giver can set the conditions under which it's prepared to give you those funds. And it can dictate to you that it will only give you these funds if and only if you meet certain conditions. Now you have a choice, right? You can say, no, thank you very much. I'm not prepared to meet those conditions, in which case you're gonna lose all that funding. And since almost every student is in receipt of some kind of government funding or other, you're gonna end up with no students. And because what has happened there is then that the government funding crowds out the private sphere. It does this, it has done this in social security, for example. I mean, that's another discussion we might have sometime. And therefore you really, you're only, you either go out of business <laughs> because you simply can't compete because the government has an infinite supply of other people's money and you don't, <laughs> okay, so you're gonna lose. Or you have to accept that it can then dictate what the conditions uh, are on which you're going to be in receipt of this money. Now in the UK, just in the last couple of weeks, they have set up a, they have given one of the uh, people in the government the responsibility for ensuring that the universities in the UK uh, maintain free speech in the universities. I'm not sure how effective this is going to be. In fact, of course, the, uh, and I'm of course deprecate the whole idea of the government getting involved in education in the first place, but leave that to one side. Given the realities of the situation, this is a slight move in the right direction. But of course, what it means is that the, the conditions under which government money is given to uh, educational institutions is going to vary depending on who's in power at any particular time. Right, and you know, he he who uh, pays the piper calls the tune. So whoever's giving the money determines what it is. So I mean, they're going to say Title IX means no discrimination on the grounds of sex means no discrimination on the grounds of gender identity. And now you've got to buy that, or else you're going to lose all the funding. So it's problematic, and in the context in which we live, it's unresolvable. There's no way you can do it. You get a few institutions. I think the University of Chicago has come out on the right side a few times where its president has said, I'm sorry, but we're committed to free speech. And so if, if you don't like it, that stuff go somewhere else, right? And the vice chancellor of Oxford, Louise Richardson, who happens to be Irish, by the way, uh, came out a year or two ago and said the same thing, Thus, she seems to have kind of resigned a little bit from that position. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But apart from that, you're gonna get, hmm, it's gonna be hard. Once you take the money, once you take the king shilling, as it was said, it's very hard to go back. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's it's always a pleasure to talk to you. We <laughs> we we could keep going as we have in the past. So 
I'll let you go. All right, Liam, this has been great. I enjoyed it. Thank you for letting me talk ad nauseum. I'm sorry if I've driven any of your, your listeners to distraction. I hope nobody commits suicide as a result of tonight's broadcast. No, <laughs> so much. God bless. It's the weekend and we can let go. It's the force and it's the get go. It's the get go. Get go. Soon as mean as the bank accounts clean up.